Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Andres Gomez Emelson. Andres is a consciousness researcher at the Quality Research Institute. QRI aims to systematize the study of consciousness, to do to consciousness what chemistry did to alchemy. Andres holds a master's degree in computational psychology and an undergraduate degree in symbolic systems from Stanford University, where he also co-founded the Stanford Transhumanist Association. This is a pretty wild episode, touching on some of the most important and mind-bending ideas I've ever encountered, centered around a single question, why can't we be happy all the time? We get into some pretty wacky territory, but I think Andres does a good job of making this approachable to somebody who has never encountered these ideas before. We use the term intuition pump a few times. This is a term coined by the philosopher Daniel Dennett to describe a thought experiment that helps the thinker use their intuition to develop an answer to a problem. On this episode, we cover Andres' life project to overcome all the mechanisms that prevent us from being happy all the time, the hedonic treadmill, the promise of anti-tolerance drugs, the influence of genetics on our ability to be happy, how electric stimulation of the brain doesn't lead to tolerance the way drugs do, wireheading done right and wrong, three types of euphoria, the social gulf between Bay Area life optimizers and everyone else, negative utilitarianism, the worst and best experiences humans have, the therapeutic and scientific potential for 5-MeO-DMT, psychedelics as effective altruisms cause X, the best way to use Ibogaine for treating opiate addiction, a better approach to using opiates for pain management, and why people might report wacky new beliefs after ego-dissolving psychedelic experiences. This might be my favorite episode of the show I've recorded so far. It's a really, really interesting conversation. And if Andres is right, maybe the most important uh, one we could be having. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Here is Andres Gomez Emelson. Andres, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, uh, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, uh, so we met at uh, EA Global about two years ago. And you came up to a group of people and said, would you like to talk about effective altruism and mental health? And I was thinking, oh, cool, like we're going to talk about, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever people might feel from confronting the reality of the world being filled with so much suffering. And you ended up talking about solving consciousness and sabotaging the hedonic treadmill. (laughs) And it was a bit of a different conversation than what I expected, but uh, in a totally welcome way. And I've been kind of like interested in your work from afar ever since then. So could you just like lay out what your life project is? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, uh, you can think of, you know, like pharmaceuticals trying to figure out like, you know, what, what new antidepressant is going to be a hit. Uh, in practice, they seem to be spitting out the same type of substance over and over again. And they're kind of like missing out on probably one of the most promising leads, which is how do you prevent uh, tolerance from happening? Um, that kind of like alludes to the overall problem that it's very hard to basically be sustainably uh, feel better than well. Uh, and that has to do with kind of like the negative feedback systems of, of the brain that basically uh, there's a lot of receptor down regulation. If, if, uh, if you take too many euphorians, you may feel really shitty afterwards. Um, and uh, likewise, like, you, you know, being in, in constantly uh, exciting states uh, may not necessarily be the, a recipe for long-term happiness. And uh, yeah, it seems kind of like a lot of uh, the way people approach how to be happy doesn't really take into account that major flaw. And kind of like my, my life project, if, if you're framing it that way, would be to, to 
figure out like actually how to overcome basically kind of all of these mechanisms that prevent us from feeling better than well all the time. Um, you could basically classify it in kind of like, um, physiological and psychological tolerance to happiness. Yeah, getting rid of that. Cool, cool. So one important concept here I think is the hedonic treadmill. Could you just lay out what that is? Yeah, uh, the hedonic treadmill uh, <laughs> sounds a little bit exciting actually, but um, if you're you know, a depressive, you may actually call it the dolorous, uh, dolorous treadmill <laughs> or something like that. Um, but yeah, basically it's the, the idea that we have kind of a, an average um, point of uh, well-being, basically how good or bad you feel. Um, it's not as affected by external circumstances as we may intuitively believe. Um, and uh, o- over time, kind of like we tend to experience a uh, kind of like very robust baseline that even if you try different antidepressants, even if you try different kind of like regimes for, for how what kind of lifestyle to have, you, you still, in the end, end up feeling more or less uh, just as well as you would have like otherwise. Uh, and that's that's called the hedonic set point. And then the, the hedonic treadmill is the fact that you kind of like need to constantly be aiming to be happy and you 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 can't kind of like, you know, be there and, and be okay for the rest of your life. There's kind of like this uh, slippery um, downturn towards like feeling normal again. Yeah, and so the downside of this is something like, oh, I think that if I get that promotion or if I date that person or you know move to that city or whatever it might be, I'll be happy, right? I'll, I'll, I'll have made it. But then anybody who gets those things uh, learns that whatever rush you get from it eventually wears off and it, you adjust to a new normal. And it might actually be harder to sustain the level of well-being that you had previously. So like, I consciously try not to spend more money on, a, on an apartment because <laughs> I don't think they get used to it and then be like, oh, now I have to spend instead of a thousand dollars a month or like two thousand dollars a month just to like get to the same level. Exactly. You will feel the same, but you will be spending more. So. Yeah. yeah. But then the flip side of this is like people who, uh, so people who win the lottery like a year later often report like very similar levels of well-being, right? Right. It's not, it's not, a, it's not as life-changing as, as you may imagine. But then also people who become paralyzed experience like a pretty similar quality of life a year later like it's lower but you know not nearly as low as people predict it to be yeah exactly uh it's kind of like a, yeah a, a failure of prediction uh, most of all yeah so, so people are just very resilient right like they they come back to that that set point um through many many really difficult and really positive circumstances yeah yeah that's right and uh it's surprisingly robust i mean you you can hear for example if you go to <laughs> some somewhere like you know alcoholics anonymous or something like that somebody who you know, has been using, you know, methamphetamine for 10 years and was an alcoholic for 15 years. And then you see the person like, well, they've been sober for five years, but they seem, they seem roughly in the same level as they were before. And that's kind of what, what they report. Obviously there's a, a period of readaptation, but overall the, the, the hedonic set point is extremely robust. There are ways to mess it up, uh, in the long term. Um, such as you know uncontrolled stress, uh, infection, um, and neurotoxic drugs. I mean, like among the the things that are actually maybe very very bad in the long term is overusing something like MDMA, uh, for example. That that might actually reduce your your hedonic set point in the long term and, and things like that. Interesting. And and is there like a physiological reason for that? Uh, most likely, yeah. I mean, the, in the case of MDMA. Uh, serotonergic neurotoxicity. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, 
kind of like a permanent downregulation of, of of serotonin receptors and and pruning of serotonin synapses is uh, yeah not not particular particularly good for your brain. Yeah, and so this this creates a lot of problems for a project that focuses primarily on like material remedies to problems, right? Um, so in effective altruism, there's like a strong focus on. Uh, you know, deworming, for example, as mm-hmm. a solution to a lot of like public health issues where, you know, people's educational outcomes will go up quite a bit and like their lived experience will improve when they're dewormed. But, you know, maybe their actual uh, self-reported happiness may not actually change that much. Is that a conclusion that you might expect? Uh, not necessarily from, I mean, in a case of uh, deworming, I, I would expect kind of like long-term, uh, you know, hedonic set point improvements. Uh, mostly because like you you do see improvements if a person is you know actively sick and then you treat them. Um, the the kind of like cons- concern with the hedonic set point is much more in the case of comparing kind of like healthy people in in different uh, life circumstances. That's that's really kind of like where you observe it um, more more strongly. Um, but I, I do think it is important to kind of <laughs> tame tame our enthusiasm about like how far kind of these interventions that just address the external environment can go. And I think in, in, in the general case, so for example, like in poverty, if if uh, your, your scale is kind of like, you know, how many people are below the poverty line, you will probably find that, you know, just barely crossing the poverty line is not actually a huge life improvement necessarily. And I think like that, that is something that is important to be mindful for. Uh, and the other thing too is, I mean, there are initiatives in effective altruism that kind of focus on, uh, happiness index, for example, and that one has the the concern that in a sense it doesn't necessarily account for um, having episodes of extreme well-being. It's more about like you know how 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 typically do you feel about your your life when it comes to life satisfaction. And one of the problems that emerges there is that yeah, if, if that's your metric, you may be kind of incentivized to actually give uh, SSRIs, um, for those who don't know, that's uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors or most common antidepressant. Uh, you may be incentivized to just give it to pretty much everybody because it you know, cuts off a little bit the tail ends of uh, anxiety and, and depression uh, in, in, in most people, but it also cuts off your ability to feel better than well. Um, you know, SSRIs have all sorts of problems like reduced enjoyment of orgasm and enjoyment of music. Um, and presumably other things as well, like uh, humor, um, flattening of affect more more broadly. And uh, yeah, uh, in EA, we, we may kind of be under the illusion that actually that will be a, um, an improvement in, in the world, whereas like, no, if we, if we actually want to, you know, increase the hedonic set point, we, we need to really care, really be mindful about like how to actually do it. You know, you need to engineer it. It's not just going to happen. Yeah, that's interesting. So like SSRIs serve as a kind of like a numbing or deadening um, yes, effect. Yes. They they kind of like narrow down your your range of affect. And uh there's a subset of people for whom that can be really good. Um I I wouldn't say I mean they're not necessarily good for for example chronic pain, but they may be good in case of kind of a, a depressive anxiety in, in a subset of people. Um but they are not a, a recipe for <laughs> for feeling better than well. Um, the, the kind of like a an analogous comparison is, for example, listening to a white noise machine. That um, if you're in a very stressful environment with you know construction work going on, then yeah, a white noise machine is probably going to be a, an improvement. Um, if you're trying to listen to a symphony, 
a white noise machine is just going to degrade your, the quality of the experience. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Um, so, okay, so the hedonic treadmill is a problem. So what is your proposed solution? Right, so uh, we can kind of like divide it on, on a few categories. Um, the kind of low-hanging fruit, I would say, uh, in the pharmaceutical uh, route is basically investigating this whole category of things that are called anti-tolerance drugs. So it, it's actually very surprising to hear for a lot of people, even a lot of neuroscientists that I have talked to, they, they think kind of a receptor down regulation and you know adaptation uh, is kind of like a, 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 just a law of nature, kind of like gravity or, <laughs> or, or electromagnetism. It's just something you can't do without. But Like what goes up must come down. Exactly. But uh, that just doesn't seem to, the, to be the case. Uh, I mean, the first hint really would be that uh, in some classes of drugs, uh, some drugs produce way more tolerance than others. Uh, for example, if you look at things that affect the GABA receptors, I mean, the most you know well-known would be alcohol. You know, it's a, it modulates an allosteric modulator of a, of a GABA receptor. And uh, yeah, that definitely down-regulates it quite a bit. And there's like some drugs like benzodiazepines that are really famous for, in a sense, causing extremely long-term tolerance, you know, if you're unlucky, you may be taking benzodiazepines for, you know, uh, six months, and then you 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 feel really shitty for the next three years. Uh, and then there's like other drugs of the same class that just also kind of like have the same acute effects, but don't have nearly as much the same long-term kind of down-regulation effects. So it does seem to be a very kind of chemical-specific property. And then on top of that, there are these very exciting uh, drugs that are specifically anti-tolerance. So what they do is they either kind of uh, diminish, uh, they either diminish block or even reverse uh, tolerance to different drugs. Um, the most famous anti-tolerance anti drug would probably be ibogaine, uh, which reverses uh, opioid tolerance. But there are uh, quite a bit of other like lesser known uh, drugs. For example, proglomide, which was used uh, for um, I believe like uh, Ig problems, uh, um, uh, ulcers. I believe in in, in the sixties. Uh, and what they noticed is like, oh, people who had like ulcers and happened to have chronic pain and were using painkillers, that they would report the painkillers would start working way better <laughs> if they were like being treated with uh, proglomide. Um, and uh, I mean, other other important ones are like agmatine, black seed oil. Um, even, even I believe DXM, dextromethorphan, which is used uh, as a cough, cough medicine, uh, all of those seem to have anti-tolerance properties. And my my gut feeling is that if 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 there was like a, a focus of development on this class of drugs as intense as there is on developing, you know, a new SSRI by the big, big pharmaceuticals we would really quickly start to find basically new substances that could potentially block tolerance in the long term. And that would be a, you know, an extremely good news, um, especially if we can minimize the side effects of that for people with, for example, chronic pain, who, you know, realistically, they will have to be taking opioids for the rest of their life uh, if, if you want to have like any kind of quality of life. And yeah, that, that would be a, a huge improvement. Um, now that's kind of like just the pharmaceutical route. I mean, really what the Qualia Research Institute is working on is <laughs> almost kind of like much more ambitious. I mean, we're trying to figure out 
um, what are the actual uh, structural features of, of states of well-being. And in a sense, if we can potentially induce them uh, even without chemicals, in a sense, either electromagnetically or with um, um, just like plain old uh, stimulation patterns in a way that rewires the brain, we, we may be able to overstep kind of like many of the key features of the hedonic treadmill. Um, and, and that's kind of like what we're looking at uh, at the moment. Uh, and finally, there's also kind of a, how can you do it at the genetic level? And that's kind of the, in a sense, the, the holy grail is to be able to, you know, um, take a pill or even just like being born in such a way that you kind of like are not going to be experiencing extremes of pain. Um, and there are a lot of really good leads in, in this space. Uh, I will just like n name, uh, there is this uh, gene called the NCN9A gene. Um, and um, most people have a certain variant of it. But then like about like 10% of the population have like a, 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 a variant of it that basically significantly lowers their pain thresholds. So they are kind of like in pain all the time. Mm. Uh, they're like much more likely to experience, you know, chronic pain, depression, anxiety. And then there's like a, another subset of the population who have uh, a different variant of it that actually increases the pain thresholds. And these people are really outgoing and, and really excited, really energetic, um, and they rarely develop chronic pain. But they, they still, you know, live a full lifespan. It's uh, from, from a health standpoint, they're totally fine. Um, the extreme you definitely do want to avoid is, I believe, when they have uh, multiple copies of it, um, you know, a, a very small percentage of the population actually have kind of a, a variant of the NCN9A uh, gene or, or the way it, it expresses itself where uh, they experience no pain at all. And of course, like that is maladaptive, and usually, you know, you may die very early because you, you know, are getting hurt all the time and you don't even notice it. So, uh, but really, kind of like the the place to aim for is a high pain threshold, and uh, yeah, I mean, a genetic genetic therapy may may be able to do that. And if we do that, then yeah, we're basically completely sabotaging the hedonic treadmill and winning gold. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I definitely want to come back to Ibogaine because I'm actually working yes. on an article about it. Um, oh, okay, awesome. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. But um, for the people who have like this very low pain uh, pain threshold, mm -hmm. was it hyperthalamic? Am I getting this right? So the, there's a, the, uh, this term called hyperthemia. Hyperthemia, yes. That would be a high pain threshold. Mm. So it takes a lot of stimulation for them to feel pain. And so what are the characteristics of people with this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, people who are hyperthemic. So first of all, yeah, I mean, there's like in the, the general direction of, um, well, in every kind of like personality factor, uh, there's kind of like uh, how that gets affected by a high hedonic uh, set point. And uh, you will generally see that people will be more extroverted, more outgoing. They will have like more friends. Um, they will be more conscientious, you know, get stuff done because mm -hmm. they're like very energetic. Um, they will be very open to experience. I mean, they're very curious uh, because one, one of the crazy things about like hyperthemia is that, you know, intuitively you may think, hey, if you're happy naturally, maybe you wouldn't do, you know, a lot of things. You would just kind of like be lay on your sofa all day and just contemplate the existence uh, <laughs> because it's perfect. But in practice, actually what ends up happening is that they enjoy, uh, not only do they enjoy stimulation uh, to a higher degree than average, they enjoy a wider range of stimulation. 
So actually, they, they're like very interested in learning about you know the world in general and like many fields of study in general. So you, you can kind of describe that as like very high openness to experience, uh, high reward from a wide variety of sources, um, low neuroticism. Uh, they just don't get upset very easily. Um, and there may there may be uh, one more that I'm uh, missing, but that, that's extreme talkativeness is one I found. Uh, Risk taking, sensation seeking. Ah, there you go. Yes. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I read this, and uh, maybe it's like horoscopes, and people just see themselves in it. But <laughs> I was just like, oh, this seems to describe me, uh, <laughs> with like the exception of short sleep patterns. I sleep quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, but I think I'll leave it to my friends to decide. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it does seem like. It, what we'd call like a joie de vivre or like lost for life. Um, yes. Maybe describe like this condition. Lost for life. That's a, that's a good way of summarizing it. And so, so people like this, you know, this is probably something that is heritable. Yeah. 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 Highly heritable. Mm. And, and so the idea is that like, this is actually primarily due to like higher, uh, or sorry, higher tolerance for pain or thresholds for pain. Yeah. Higher uh, pain thresholds. Mm. So like the, the pain, I mean, the, the, that's that's one aspect. Uh, this is also associated with genes that basically uh, encode for the uh, enzymes that break down neurotransmitters. So, I mean, like a kind of like an a, approximation of maybe what a person with hyperthemia might be uh, experiencing is if you take uh, one of kind of like these older antidepressants called uh, MAOI inhibitors. So, selagiline, for example, uh, is a very common one. Um, and what that does is basically it prevents the breakdown of dopamine and norepinephrine in your body. So you just have a kind of like a higher baseline of mm-hmm. it. Uh, and in a way like that, I mean, that type of antidepressant is much more sustainable than, for example, classic uh, stimulants like uh, Ritalin or, or Adderall that may work acutely, but, you know, they have a pretty serious come down and a pretty serious kind of withdrawal, whereas uh, something like selagiline, uh, not so much. Um, it's kind of just the mechanism of action, uh, the 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 f- less less breakdown of uh, dopamine and norepinephrine, and yeah, people with hyperthemia will are probably experiencing something similar, kind of like a, you know, by default, <laughs> they kind of have selagiline in their body. <laughs> hmm. And and so somebody who's hyperthemic, uh, a testable prediction might be that they would actually have uh, a higher ability to withstand physical pain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I um, stick in their hand in ice for longer than yes, somebody else. Yes, and more resilience uh, in general. Kind mm-hmm. of like a, being able to exercise for longer would be yeah. another proxy. Interesting. Yeah, so I guess this would be uh, Oprah represented within professional athletes. Absolutely, yes. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, and <laughs> do you know what incidence of the population, within a population this is? Oh, it's not very large. I believe it was like one in a thousand. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is a very rare condition, whereas the flip side of it being like very sensitive to pain is far more common. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not a good ratio. Hmm. Interesting. So it's funny. This is a, I had a conversation yesterday with uh, Leah Garces, who's uh, president of Mercy for Animals and we're talking about chickens mm. and mm-hmm. chickens have been bred, at least the meat chickens to basically suffer their entire lives because their breasts grow so large so quickly. And mm-hmm. they're kind of like the biggest cause of their suffering. It's not even the conditions they're held in, but just their genetics. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who's born with a predisposition to depression or a very low hedonic set point, um, there probably is not much that they feel they can do to, to change that, right? Right. I mean, they, yeah. Uh, 
it's 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 surprising just how how gen- how strong like genetics can be uh, when it comes to uh, influencing mood and yeah I mean I I do know some people who are probably genetically depressed and you know they 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 may describe their brain as kind of uh, resistant to pleasure <laughs> it's just it is not they're not really wired for for enjoyment unfortunately yeah yeah I mean I I know some people in my life I would describe that way as well um, mm-hmm. where like. The conditions of their environment uh, are such that you'd think things would go very well, like you know, uh, stable family life and you know, good education. Um, you know, they have natural abilities, but then that can make the lack of pleasure in things all the greater, right? Because there's no external reason. It's like, well, you know, if my family was abusive, I could point to that being mm. like a cause of suffering. Mm-hmm. But if everything's going really well, like I just feel guilty about you know feeling sad about the world so much. Right, 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 and definitely uh, incomprehension more broadly in, in in society, right? Like that people will think that in a sense you're you're being you know acting very entitled if you're not happy given your circumstances. But yeah, you know, it it may be really something like biochemical, not, nothing you can actually do. You know, generally something about. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a great Simon and Garfunkel song called Richard Corey, uh, and it's from the perspective of. A poor factory worker in a town, and Richard Corey is the son of like the banker, and he's rich mm-hmm. and with women all the time, and like really successful. And the factory worker is just upset and and jealous. And then the song ends with Richard Corey killing himself. Um, and the the perspective, the protagonist of the song, still wants to be Richard Corey at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, how we recommend <laughs> it? It's just like yeah, from the outside looking in, like, with these celebrity deaths as well. Um, you know, uh, Lincoln Park singer, I think. Uh, forget it, Chesterton. Um, mm-hmm. He, I remember a friend of mine, we were playing like rock band and we we're playing Lincoln Park song and Lincoln Park music is very um, emotionally, like it's powerful and, and uh, very dramatic. And a friend of mine was like, oh, like these guys, like, you know, sing about sad, being sad all the time, but they're like so rich now. And then like, you know, a year, within a year, the, the guy singing that song like killed himself. And it's like mm-hmm. clearly whatever demons were haunting him were not caused by material deprivation. Right. Or, you know, low status. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's like one of the most successful bands of all time. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So I, I do want to go through some of those other uh, solutions. And, and one of the things that I've been reading about from through your uh, work is there's this period of time where a guy in New Orleans at Tulane was like inserting um, electrodes in people's brains and like directly simulating like the pleasure center. <laughs> yes. And this seemed to actually get around the problem of tolerance where yes. like with neurotransmitters, there might be this like reuptake issue. Um, but mm-hmm. with direct electrical simulation, people were able to just keep simulating those spots over and over again. Yeah. 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 That's it's, it's really extraordinary that in a sense that there isn't uh, tolerance for when it comes to electrical stimulation. Uh, and really that was kind of like the, the, the first clue for David Pierce at least, which is a, you know, a philosopher that I, I really like. And I mean, he, he's been my friend for a number of years and his life is kind of devoted to eliminating suffering. And uh, yeah, for him, kind of like the, the first glimmer of hope was figuring out that um, in all these studies with uh, wire heading, um, there w- didn't seem to be any kind of physiological tolerance that, you know, the brain, sure, it evolved to be able to kind of like have negative feedback mechanisms at the biochemical level, but you know, in nature, <laughs> we never experienced electrodes. Uh, that was not kind of like a way in which you know, animals try to hack <laughs> our our behavior. Um, 
Now, uh, electric stimulation, yeah, it, it does work. Uh, definitely in the case of, for example, Parkinson's or even, you know, there, there's been some interesting studies on, on Alzheimer's uh, and, and uh, deep brain stimulation. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely also works for, for depression. Um, kind of like really kind of, uh, kickstarting the, the reward circuitry. Um, it does have some side effects though, which is that in the long term, it changes your personality to some extent. Um, and it also gives you a bunch of ticks and it gives you like, you know, a lot of like, kind of like very, very low level unpleasant qualities to it. But, you know, on the whole, uh, if you're suicidally de depressed, I think like it should be a human right to be able to wire your head. Uh, mm. Just given the, you know, the, the, the ethical significance of uh, a state of deep uh, despair, especially if it's treatment resistant. Yeah, I, I think it's important to have that uh, as an option on the table. Yeah, so let's just define wireheading for somebody who's not heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, classically, is uh, you know, the the name suggests you know putting a wire uh, in, in your head, and specifically, it could be in the the nucleus accumbens, kind of deep deep inside your brain, in the uh, reward centers centers of the brain. Um, and uh, it also works if you. I mean, there's many ways of doing it. You can also stimulate uh, the VTA, which is in a slightly different part of part of the brain. It also leads to very similar results. Um, but um, kind of like there's other there's this other sense of wireheading, which is more more general, which is the the idea of changing your uh, reward circuitry in such a way that you're always in a positive state. And in that sense, that's kind of like not tied to a particular intervention. It's not, you know, electrical stimulation with, with an electrode. That's just kind of the first way in which it started. Um, but if you were to, for example, find a particular cocktail of anti-tolerance drugs and, you know, actually be able to sustainably be happy, uh, even if it's just by, a, by the chemical means, um, I think like people would also call that wireheading. Yeah, so I think like wireheading correct me if this is wrong, but, mm -hmm. you know, when we get pleasure from experience, um, we often attribute it to the experience of like riding the roller coaster or having sex or whatever it may be. Yeah. But what's really happening is like neurotransmitters are, are firing in such a way that, uh, or, you know, traversing synaptic clefts and then people have the experience of pleasure or well-being. Mm -hmm. And some people reduce it down to that. And like for some people that takes away some of the magic um, I remember like edgy teenagers on Reddit saying like love is just a chemical reaction in the brain and it's like dude everything's a chemical reaction in the brain and so it's this recognition that we don't actually want the roller coasters or the sex we want the, the good feeling that's right and so if we can just get to the good feeling without the other things yes we've like solved consciousness potentially um, yes. but I think to many people like the idea of like you know sticking yourself to an IV and just like stimulating the pleasure center of the brain ad infinitum is a horrifying thought, yeah right like this is like uh i don't know stanley kubrick level of like uh some like <laughs> twisted science fiction experiment um but you're talking about something else right wireheading done right is something you've written about yeah yeah yeah. wireheading done right i mean exactly i think i think like that's uh probably the most uh efficient way of kind of sidestepping a lot of the 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 concerns uh I mean, I personally, I do think that, you know, if you're suicidally depressed, uh, hooking yourself to an IV with anti-tolerance drugs and whatnot is preferable. <laughs> um, and honestly, anybody who says otherwise is cruel in, in, in my book. Yeah. But um, I think we can aim higher. We can actually aim towards being both uh, sublimely uh, blissful all the time 
and at the same time extraordinarily uh, functional and productive. And kind of like one one uh, kind of like proof of concept for how to even get get that started is to acknowledge that there are, there are many different types of bliss that have different kind of like functional and behavioral implications. Um, uh, based on a particular study I conducted on basically doing dimensionality reduction on how drugs influence uh, states of consciousness, one of the things that came out of that was that there are kind of like three big uh, dimensions of well-being, especially when it comes to how they uh, are generated by, by drugs. Um, and these are uh, fast euphoria, which is, uh, you know, caffeine and amphetamines and stimulants and, you know, exercising, kind of like this, you know, feeling of uh, uh, anticipation and excitation. Um, and, and it's in a sense like anticipatory pleasure. It's kind of like the, 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 the pleasure of savoring what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and that one is like very product, productivity enhancing. Uh, another uh, type of euphoria is called slow euphoria, which might be kind of deep states of relaxation, you know, mindfulness and heroin and <laughs> alcohol, <laughs> all of those things. Uh, and that's kind of a thing what people generally think about when, when you say wireheading. It's kind of like, oh, you just don't do anything and, and you're totally fine, you're, you're happy, you're okay, you're peaceful. Uh, and then there's a, a third kind. Um, I originally called it uh, spiritual slash philosophical euphoria is the one that has to do more with, um, uh, in meditation it might be kind of vipassana, like states of insight in, in, in the drug space is really just psychedelics and dissociatives, basically things that make you uh, question reality and um, make, uh, make you see the world from many, 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 many different points of view, uh, a lot of them that are impossible to experience otherwise. Uh, and uh, now after a lot of kind of like developments in neuroscience, I would actually call that kind of the uh, self-organized criticality uh, type of euphoria. Um, but it basically has to do with kind of unleashing a lot of uh, mental cascades, like all of these, you know, the connecting many thoughts that weren't connected before and seeing what happens. Uh, it's kind of a breeding ground for, for new ideas. And um, that one kind of like is really ideal for, you know, creativity and brainstorming and, and problem solving. So whereas, for example, fast euphoria, you can think of it as more kind of a, a state optimal for uh, you know, exploitation. It's like you, you already have the answer, you just need to implement it, then fast euphoria is probably the, the ideal state. So rather than kind of like getting uh, hooked on only one of these types of euphoria, uh, and all of them have their problems, um, I mean, very briefly, if you just do fast euphoria, one of the main problems is that you will very likely be stuck in a local uh, maxima in some kind of like self-repeating loop. You know, people get uh, hooked on slot machines. If you have like kind of a slow, uh, fast euphoria um, in a sustainable way, you would probably end up doing basically the same thing over and over again <laughs> because that's like super reinforcing. So like I'm thinking of like a meth, uh, meth yeah. addict in Breaking Bad, like digging a hole for 12 hours straight. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and very famously, I mean, people who take uh, meth uh, recreationally, um, it's fascinating that they end up doing like the same thing for like 12 hours straight even like longer, uh, you know, m most typically things such as like uh, playing board games or, or having sex or uh, or uh, slot machines and, and things like that. Um, but also it could be, you know, you could be, you know, 
uh, get stuck writing about you know uh, philosophy or something like that. But but the point is like you're not actually getting new information. You're just like executing on the things that you already know, and that, that's that's not good. You know you you get stuck in a on a loop. Um, slow euphoria definitely the problem is that you you don't actually produce anything else uh, you're just like stuck in doing nothing uh, which is really good for for relaxing you know for actually recovering and repairing your body and and whatnot but yeah it's, it's not a sustainable state and uh, you know spiritual slash uh, philosophical euphoria uh, is really good for problem solving but also if you never execute you know, you're, you're just kind of like stuck thinking about like the nature of reality without actually acting. So uh, kind of the proposal here is to uh, implement a reward circuitry in the brain such that you cycle through these different types of euphoria. So maybe in, in the morning, you're kind of a hyper-motivated and you get stuff done. And then as the afternoon starts, you kind of uh, switch into these, you know, hyper-creative problem-solving state where you think about how do you address uh, the problems that you weren't able to solve in the, in the morning. And then maybe at night, you end up in this kind of like very pleasant, you know, hyper relaxed uh, state of uh, contentment and slow euphoria. And, uh, and the idea is to basically cycle every day. Um, and I think if you do that, you would be able to basically be in a constantly positive state and never get stuck because you're, you're always basically executing and relaxing and then creating new information. And I think I think that's kind of a, yeah, a way, I mean, that sidesteps, I believe about like, you know, 90% of the concerns with why you're heading. And so this is through a combination, I think you said of genetics, um, environmental stimuli, uh, chemical, you know, stimuli, like pharmacological solutions and electrical stimuli as like some way of transitioning between these three states. Yeah, I mean, I, Honestly, I think like there's probably a lot of low ha- low hanging fruit that doesn't even involve uh, those kind of hardcore interventions. Um, yeah, I mean probably a combination of you know it, relatively mild uh, supplements with the right kind of meditation, and potentially as well uh, a particular neurotechnology. Uh, the sort of things that um, uh, yeah, I mean basically things that replicate psychedelic like states but without comp- compounds. Um, I think like for at least a percentage of people, uh, we could within some years actually start to kind of get a wire heading done right type of a cohort. <laughs> uh, for, for people who are heavily depressed, yeah, you might need more hardcore technologies. Yeah, yeah. So do you care to put a, a number to those uh, years the way we are? Oh, I, I would say, I mean, honestly, probably five years. I mean, yeah, considering like the... Uh, considering things such as like microdosing ibogaine, uh, which uh, seem to be extremely promising for basically being able to have like sustainable slow euphoria. Yeah, so I think like, I mean, maybe, you know, microdosed ibogaine itself might not be the, the, the solution, but a tweak on that compound or something of that class. Yeah, uh, th- I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic within five years, we might be able to get kind of a wire heading done right starter kit <laughs> interesting and and so if you have a small subset of people let's say they're probably in the bay area and they're yeah. probably not representative of like <laughs> the world at large no. yeah. um doing this wire heading done right like what do you think of the social implications of that ah um well can you elaborate uh what type of social implications i guess like 
so one of the things that I, I kind of worry about when I, I go to Burning Man and I'm experiencing like something qualitatively different from anything I've, I've ever experienced before. Mm-hmm. I just feel like the gulf between me and the class of people that I associate with and the rest of the world is just like that much greater. Mm-hmm. Right. And the experiential gap um, is that much harder to cross. Yeah. And I mean, you see this in the Bay Area, I think most dramatically where you've got the Google buses and like some of the wealthiest people in the world and then like massive homeless populations mm-hmm. and people throwing bricks at the Google bus and like <laughs> this, this really significant um, <laughs> that class only ha- and social divide. <laughs> yeah. That only happened once, but, but yes, I guess it yeah. speaks to something, right? It, it's capturing <laughs> some like anxiety that people are feeling. Yes. Yes. Okay. No, I, I, I so there is definitely the concern of like, um, if you kind of like generate uh, interventions that produce why you're heading down right, you might kind of create these, you know, class of people that are in, you know, cloud nine, they're in their own kind of like cluster, their own society, and they stop caring about others. I mean, that, that is definitely a concern. Um, honestly, you know, uh, states of well-being uh, are not incompatible with high levels of compassion. Indeed, uh, typically they're correlated. Uh, you will generally see that, you know, when people feel really good, they kind of like have a, an expanded uh, moral circle of compassion as well. It's not necessarily the case. And especially if you only have, for example, fast euphoria, yeah, that, that, that doesn't happen. You know, like people who take cocaine a lot, they tend to become pretty sh- uh, selfish. You know, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> not, not necessarily an intervention for altruism. Uh, on the other hand, you have like things like MDMA that actually make people feel like they, they love the world and the world loves them. And... They really care about everybody, uh, and the same kind of uh, these uh, states of meditation called uh, yeah loving kindness, uh, very deep states of uh, loving kindness, uh, yeah tend to be uh, really 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 kind of like fostering altruistic thoughts. Um, so my kind of like vision here is in a sense if you have kind of a heightened state of well-being and you're you know motivated and creative. That gives you a lot more slack to actually be able to volunteer your time for for good um, and kind of like expand the number of people who are able to to experience this. Um, I mean, talking from uh, you know personal experience, uh, the the times have been the most uh, productive when it comes to you know advocacy and and uh, research for 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 developing uh, kind of like technologies for for the well-being of everybody is precisely when I felt kind of the best in the most sustainable way um it's, it's very hard to for example study you know the vast problem of uh, chronic pain and how to address it um when you yourself uh feel really miserable uh kind of like having like this additional well-being gives you gives you slack gives you the ability to kind of like look at really horrible things and not be immediately shocked by it yeah, yeah, I was uh, working on an article on solitary confinement, which is one of the worst practices, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the worst thing that we're doing to people on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't in the best state of mind myself, and mm-hmm. I just found it to be intolerable to do the research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually, <laughs> I mean, that's definitely something I worry about, uh, for example, in, in effective altruism, that people, in, in a sense, there's kind of a volunteer ver- uh, burnout and... Uh, it's uh, I think it's really, really important to not try to say that it's uh, virtuous to kind of uh, just, you know, throw yourself to the sun and yeah. <laughs> staring to the abyss too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's important to uh, focus on sustainability 
And uh, yeah, in a sense, like do the work on the most horrible things <laughs> when you yourself feel feel best equipped to basically deal will w- deal with your own pain. Yeah. 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 I mean, related to this, something else you've written about, um, I think at one point you at least identified as a negative utilitarian. It, to, to an extent, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I should say like the, the honest answer is I'm agnostic about the f- fundamental ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but could, could we just define negative utilitarian? Yeah. yeah, yeah negative utilitarian. So a negative utilitarian, basically um, their reward function or their utility function is kind of a... Um, uh, how close we are to zero suffering, uh, and they don't necessarily care about, uh, ex- you know, happiness and states of well-being, uh, except insofar as pragmatically that it enables you to to actually care about uh, reducing suffering more. So, uh, negative utilitarianism and working on you know super happiness technologies that's perfectly compatible, uh, especially if you think of super happiness as a cure for suffering and honestly it really is right like the best way to eliminate suffering on oneself is to experience super happiness basically that that's a kind of like <laughs> a huge vaccine against uh, states of suffering but um but a negative utilitarian would also be totally okay with basically um eliminating reality <laughs> that's kind of a <laughs> like pushing the button uh, pushing the to button. end all life in the universe because there's yes. far more suffering than than well-being yeah, or or even if even I mean an, a hardcore negative utilitarian would say that even if there is just you know one person having a mild headache, like that's reason enough to you know throw everything on the on, on the bin. <laughs> and and so somebody listening to this might think this is like crazy, right? Um, yeah, like good yeah, things yeah. should be stacked up against bad things. But yes. what are some of the intuition pumps arguing in favor of negative utilitarianism? Yeah, I mean, negative utilitarianism, I mean, first of all, it seems much more reasonable if you're in a state of uh, intense suffering. Um, then, it, it, yeah, you feel kind of uh, abandoned. Uh, you feel betrayed uh, by feeling like, oh my gosh, there's this person who would rather be on an amusement park than help me, even though I'm in such a deep state of suffering. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of negative utilitarian intuition pumps come from kind of, yeah, the, like this sense of, well, um, not being helped when you are in a very distressful state. Um, but there's also, I think like a very important intuition pump, uh, that actually comes from, uh, this, uh, kind of like field in, in philosophy that's called uh, personal identity. Uh, and basically if you stop kind of experiencing people as, kind of like this continuous uh, self over time. And you think instead of, in a sense, like people as experienced machines, you know, their brains are creating moments of experience uh, uh, constantly. Uh, and in a sense, like what really exists um, when it comes to kind of like possible moral patience is uh, each moment of experience. Uh, that actually, I, I think like, uh, kind of like builds up a case for negative utilitarianism because it says that um, a, a moment of experience that is in a, a deep suffering, there's nothing that you can do about it uh, when it comes to kind of like making up for it. You know, if, if you have an ontology where, you know, people are real and people over time kind of, uh, they do uh, encompass kind of like this unified self, then maybe you can say, well, this person suffered a lot, but then it got compensated by feeling happy later on. But if you believe that really what's out there is just moments of experience, you will say, well, there were there was this suffering, 
and then afterwards there was this happiness but the suffering still exists and there's nothing you can do to redeem it mm. and which paints a very in a sense very sad view of reality where you know dinosaurs uh, eating each other alive you know that's there's nothing you can do about it that just happened and and uh there, there's no kind of like redeeming of it um and i think like if you have that into if you have that intuition about personal identity then yeah broadly speaking you you may prioritize suffering yeah one other pump that i think uh is fairly persuasive to me is like if you were presented the choice between experiencing you have a 50 50 chance of one side experiencing the best day of your entire life you've ever experienced the other side is the worst day you've ever experienced yeah would you press the button and take the 50 <laughs> 50 chance Ah, interesting. I think most people would say no, right? It, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think, yeah. But then it, the question is like, all right, so it com- becomes like a two to one chance of like good to bad or three mm-hmm. to like at what mm-hmm. point do you roll the dice? Right. Um, and then you can get a specific like lean to your negative utilitarianism. Because I think most people probably do actually share that intuition. Yeah. But they might say like, you know, in a one in a thousand chance of it being the worst day ever, but 999 times it's going to be the best. That's that's worth it for me. I'm going to roll those dice. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, so suffering is like uh, 999 times worse than pleasure. Mm-hmm. That might be like the same unit of each. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think I think like a very related to that is um, a very important uh, intuition pump is um, that in a sense, desire for positive states, you can think of that as a kind of form of mild suffering itself, that we are kind of like prisoners to our own desires and and in a sense uh when you ask that question like would you rather have you know are you interested in you know a 50 50 chance of you know the happiest versus the the saddest moment of of your life um some some, somebody might say like well i really crave the the positive state but then it's like well actually that's kind of like biasing your view in in a way that I mean, in a similar way to a meth addict would be kind of like craving a lot, uh, a next heat, even though the current state in which they are is is really, really unpleasant, kind of like the state of, of, of craving positive states. Um, I don't actually necessarily fully uh, agree with that view because I think that many states of desire are also extremely positive. I also believe that if you eliminate desire, you don't eliminate suffering. <laughs> Unlike, yeah. you know, some some kind of like Buddhist or Eastern views of like desire is the root of all suffering. I, th- I don't think that's true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I do. I do think expectation can, which is related to desire. Yeah. Um, yeah expectation yeah. can play a large role in your experience well-being. Oh, right? definitely. Like disappointment because you were expecting something more um, is probably one of the greatest sources of uh, suffering in the world. Well, uh, I, I would say it's, it is a it is a component for sure. Uh, if, if you have very high expectations, that, that that's generally going to make you feel uh, pain in one way or another. On the other hand, uh, melancholic depression is, in a sense, a state with no desire, and that's pretty unpleasant. Mm. So, you really want to kind of have like a pleasant desires. You know, desires that having them themselves is 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 a pleasant thing to do, and. I would say that yeah, that's that's the case for for a number of desires. If you're in a, if you have a good hedonic set point, desiring itself can be a, a fun thing. Yeah, it's like people who buy lottery tickets because they like to fantasize about winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, you know, as long as they're not in a in a state of uh, uh, yeah, craving. extreme poverty or like yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and. Um, 
I guess like the the final intuition pump for negative utilitarianism is kind of just how bad suffering can be. I mean, this connects to the presentation I gave yesterday uh, where <laughs> you attended at the New York Effective Altruism uh, uh, meetup. And, Great organization. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was super fun. Uh, <laughs> um, no, really, really good vibes. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, people in general are not aware of how bad suffering can be. Uh, and once uh, you start researching, again, like this is one of the things you probably shouldn't research unless you're in a, a really positive state yourself. Um, kind of in the, uh, yeah, positive volunteering mindset uh, rather than depressive, <laughs> depressive, uh, sad state. But yeah, no, suffering can be really, really, really bad. Uh, orders of magnitude worse than people imagine. And uh, in a sense, I think like it's, once you realize that, it, it almost feels perverse to say like, well, let's have like, you know, uh, the possibility of an amusement park um, because it's worth it, even though, you know, you, you may risk the chance of getting a, you know, a cluster headache or one of these extremely, extremely painful things that most people who experience it say, you know, at the time they're experiencing, they, they say like, yeah, like they would trade anything to make it stop. Yeah. No, a friend of mine had a, surgery not too long ago that had some complications and he experienced extreme pain mm. as a result of it mm-hmm. and it made him and he was already you know a negative leaning utilitarian but it actually made him far more in that direction yeah um, where he was like you know based on the suffering i was experiencing i would have given anything to stop it yeah 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 so i think i think that all of those are really strong um there, there is kind of like a steelman uh case i think to to be made for at least kind of like a, a certain version of classic utilitarianism. I mean, I, I do think that it is important to update on how bad suffering uh, can be, and most people really haven't. Uh, and definitely, uh, even in EA, I think like we don't necessarily grasp uh, fully uh, in terms of cause prioritization, um, kind of like just how bad certain diseases can be. Uh, at the same time, we're also not integrating how good experiences can be. Uh, one of the things I talked about yesterday was how um, there's at least three kind of categories of experience that are orders of magnitude better in how they feel than, you know, anything else around and, and is very counterintuitive just how good it can be. Um, maybe maybe I can kind of briefly mention them. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, so basically you have uh, Janus, uh, which is kind of like this very, very advanced the states of concentration and they so like j-h-a-n-a j-h-a-n-a that's right janus uh, and there's like eight of them uh each of them kind of like progressively more uh detached from the body but also more uh concentrated more intense um more subtle uh people describe it um and more blissful and i mean even just like Jana number one is kind of described as continuous orgasms. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a starting point. Yeah, that's a starting point. <laughs> that's the floor. <laughs> you know, Jana number two is kind of like uh, opening uh, the best birthday gift that, you know, you've ever received is exactly what you wanted, exactly what you needed, or even better than that. You it's know, funny to me that that's after the continuous multiple orgasm. Yeah, but I, I, it's kind of like a more psychological pleasure, I think. But it could, you know, I guess I've never gotten that good of a gift. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, so so genos are super good. The other, you know, extreme example is um, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, especially, um, I mean, research shows especially epilepsy that touches the uh, insula, which is kind of this deep brain structure. Um, and, uh, and you know, Dostoevsky had that. Uh, he described it as, you know, uh, a bliss so high, a happiness so good that is unimaginable in the normal state. And it's something that he would trade... Uh, you know, 10 years or maybe even his entire life just to experience, just to get to experience. Wow. This so. is coming from somebody who knows suffering. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and, um, and you also have this other thing uh, that's basically uh, experiences catalyzed by the psychedelic called uh, 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine uh, or 5-MeO-DMT, which is related to DMT, the you know, the, the spirit molecule, what Joe Rogan talks about all the time. Um, <laughs> But it's different, you know. Uh, typical DMT makes you hallucinate, kind of like these higher intelligences and like spaceships and crazy machine elves, machine elves and crazy geometry. You know, all of that is true. You do experience those things. I mean, I think there are hallucinations, but but it's like very real when you experience it. Um, but that's not what five meo DMT is about. Five meo DMT is much more about. Uh, ego dissolution or ego softening um, together with um, kind of like a simplification of your state of consciousness, kind of the elimination of internal boundaries uh, and everything kind of just feels like it becomes one and it's just like this state of oneness that is extremely, extremely blissful. Uh, people uh, have described it as kind of a, it is, is the experience it, uh, that every experience wants to be, but can't. And it doesn't even know it because we don't even, we don't even usually have like a sense of how to change our experience to feel that way. Like it's, it's so alien that it, we, don't, we don't have that gradient. We don't have that direction in, in our map. But um, people, people say that in a sense, once you experience a good 5-MeO DMT trip, you realize that you know every orgasm, every hug, every uh, every raise, you know, like every good exam that you've had, like every every positive experience that you've had is kind of like a low-dimensional projection of this other experience, the 5 meal state, which is kind of the, the culmination of positive feelings. And yeah, orders of magnitude better than, than people imagine. And, you know, in a sense, if you experience that, it may bias you towards, you know, classical or even positive utilitarianism. You would say like, you know, I would trade any suffering for this. So mm. so it, if that's a good day, maybe my 50-50 is actually yeah. worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a 50-50, you know, positive 5-MeO DMT experience, 50-50 cluster headache. I, w- I would probably avoid, I would probably not, not, not engage in that <laughs> personally, <Yeah>. but. <laughs> and, and so the f- 5-MeO DMT. Yeah. This is actually from the Sonora Desert Toad, right? This is like the That's venom right. that is ejected and then smoked. Yeah, it's, it's one of the few non-vegan uh, psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> but the toad isn't actually hurt in the process, right? I, I think it's debatable. It's definitely not hurt from a reproductive standpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. like the, uh, I mean, it's probably hurt psychologically. I mean, you're you're you're, you're scaring squeeze. it yeah, yeah. for it to to eject that that venom. Um, so I, it's, I, it's a vegetarian product, but not vegan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I would advocate it. Um, I, well, I probably shouldn't say I would advocate, but I, I, I think like it's more ethical to, 
use the synthetic version. I was going uh, to ask if there is a synthetic version. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's more standardized. Nobody, I mean, nobody truly knows what's actually in the in the full Venom. I mean, there's like 5-amino DMT plus DMT plus a bunch of other stuff, hmm. other other tryptamines. Um, but no, I mean, like, uh, just pure 5-amino DMT is probably uh, the way to go. Um, and uh, it's legal in Mexico and Canada. So we're sandwiched between places of legal yeah. peak life experiences. Yeah, yeah, which is insane. I mean, it's insane and... Uh, no, we, we uh, I mean, at Qualia Research, we, we do consider 5-MeO kind of like pot- potentially the most important drug when it comes to um, its value for scientific research on the pleasure-pain axis. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we we're considering yeah running, ru- running legal studies uh, in Mexico or Canada with it. How long does the experience last? Uh, the kind of like very outlandish, uh, out of this world experience is usually between five, maybe six minutes, but kind of like the full feeling not normal state of consciousness is about like 20. Gotcha. I mean, that's incredible, especially compared to like LSD is eight to 12 hours. <laughs> psilocybin is like five to six hours and psilocybin is the source of a lot of psychedelic research. Um, yes. In no small part because it's much easier to do research on a drug that only lasts half a workday instead <laughs> of, you know, an entire workday. Yeah, that's right. And uh, no, definitely, there's like some, some, some studies uh, that are like very promising for five uh, meo DMT having the same psychological effects, if not better, than psilocybin, and uh, it fits way better, you know, in actual therapeutic practice. Like you know, within one hour. Uh, in, in a typical one-hour session with a therapist, you you can try 5-MeO DMT and try to integrate it. Wow. And and so this is actually also in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his third trip, and he does not have a positive experience. And mm-hmm. he partly attributes it to not like quite getting into... He's in like low-Earth orbit, and he doesn't get to the escape velocity to really yep. get to like the I don't know, transcendental space that people <laughs> describe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that um, I've heard quite a bit, that you need... Uh, for some people, you need kind of like a, a threshold uh, dose uh, to to actually kind of like enter into the blissful state. I think uh, to some extent, um, I mean, I, I do have a bias towards kind of like believing that uh, a lot of like optimism about psychedelics is com- kind of like comes from true believers in a sense. Uh, uh, and it's, it's important to be a little bit skeptical about, you know, the prescriptions of, you know, how, how you should do it. I'm especially skeptical of people who say you should do, you know, ayahuasca with a shaman or uh, personally, I think uh, all shamans are charlatans. It's <laughs> um, a hot take, but yeah, I, I think yeah, I share yeah. that intuition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my, my take is like, no, do psychedelics with people who are scientifically minded and, and I mean, who are like compassionate and, 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 and who really care about your experience, but, you know, who, who will actually call, call an ER if you really need it. Um, Go, call an ambulance if you really need it. Uh, but yeah, no, 5-MeO, uh, uh, one of the reasons I, you know, I don't advocate people taking it uh, left and right is that you can actually have like an extremely unpleasant experience, just as you can have an exp- extremely pleasant experience. Um, from all that I have read, uh, usually the extremely unpleasant experience happens at the very beginning. Uh, it's usually kind of a, when you're coming up, you realize that it's, it's gonna be very intense and you panic. And then the panic gets amplified by the heightened state of consciousness. 
uh, which is kind of a, you know adding gasoline to, to a fire. It's, it's not good. Um, but then some people say like, yeah, even if you panicked, um, if you took enough, you will kind of enter in a state of ego death and then it's gonna be the, the best experience of your life. Um, but then there's also some people who say, hey, if you, if you take a 5-MeO DMT together with a benzodiazepine or, or together with a MDMA, you know, it always produces a super positive experience. And I'm, I am more interested in that. I'm, I'm interested in figuring out how do we produce a positive experience with 5-MeO DMT 99.99% of the time. I really don't want to misfire, basically. I think it's really important uh, if you do scientific research with it, or even if you use it for therapy, that nobody gets hurt. Yeah, totally. Um, just from an ethical standpoint and practically, you know, this is a controversial treatment, I'm sure. And the United States has a tendency to just criminalize things that it doesn't understand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and uh, yeah, exactly. So you, 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 do, you do kind of have like this, uh, in a sense, like backlash from, or, or rather kind of like polarization, where it's kind of like, oh, some people will say like every psychedelic is terrible, uh, and then true believers will say like no 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 even bad trips are are, are important they you know they help you learn like or maybe they're like surfacing some some problem inside you and uh, there's a there's a, a a a grain of truth to that uh, but also there's a lot of BS in in, in the sense of um, a lot of suffering on psychedelics I think is fully avoidable and I think like the benefits from difficult trips as they call them um, can also be obtained from just fully pleasant trips yeah uh, there is a really interesting statistic which is I think over 80% of people who experience quote unquote bad trips uh, report benefiting from the experience in the long run and you yeah. know that might be some kind of like Stockholm syndrome type yeah. thing yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you don't know the justification. You, know, you don't know the counterfactual which is if they didn't have a, a, a bad experience in that one session and they had had instead a, a positive ecstatic experience, how much would they have benefited uh, as well, mm -hmm. right? Like in a sense that they're kind of like seeing the silver lining of, of, the, of a bad situation, but maybe they would have gotten even more benefits if the situation had been fully good. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think many people are advocating for intentionally experiencing <laughs> a bad trip, um, but I guess it is somewhat reassuring that, you know, maybe it's just a rationalization, but the fact that people could even make that uh, is probably somewhat reassuring to some folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess we we're dancing around it, but uh, some people discuss effective altruism cause X. So mm. effective altruism has a few core cause areas, um, one of which is largely like global reducing global poverty and improving global global health. Mm -hmm. uh, another is improving the lives of farmed animals. Mm -hmm. um, another is focusing on the long term future and all the people and animals that will live in generations to come. Um, and so the search for the next cause, the thing that we're missing and should be thinking about mm -hmm. is, is quite important because um, we may actually have been not wasting resources so much, but like we could have been putting them towards even more productive uses. Mm -hmm. And one of the cause X's that I'm particularly um, inclined towards is uh, psychedelic legalization and mm -hmm. normalization. Mm -hmm. um, I gave a presentation on this at Effective Altruism New York mm. and uh, I can post the slides as well for, for that. And it was pr pretty short, but... Um, my general thesis was that mental health is a cause, and mental illness and spe uh, specifically is a cause of enormous suffering. And mm -hmm. across an incredibly wide spectrum of um, mental illnesses, psychedelics, um, if you include MDMA and ketamine as well, uh, 
look like the best treatment we have uh, so far for things like depression, um, addiction, PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on psychedelics as a cause X. Yeah, no, I think I think the case is pretty compelling. Um, I mean, personally, I think uh, the, the 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 biggest benefits of psychedelics will come from uh, researching them scientifically, and that you know, uh, kind of like advanced psychedelic therapy in you know twenty years from now is probably not gonna look like you know take some mushrooms and talk to a therapist. It's gonna be something much more targeted, I think, and something with a very very uh, low uh, risk for negative experiences as well. Um, that said, e- you know, even with kind of like ancient technology that we have right now, you know, take some mushrooms, talk to a therapist, even that already, you know, shows like much better outcomes than, uh, you know, the, the leading uh, pharma- like typical pharmaceutical approaches um, or even, you know, CBT or, or traditional therapy. So, um I, I do think like, yeah, from a mental health standpoint, you know, psychedelics are, 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 are it's very reasonable to think of them as cause X. Uh, psychedelic research as cause X, I would say that's even higher. And uh, in the context of, you know, alleviate, alleviating extreme suffering, you know, legalizing uh, psychedelics uh, for the use of treating migraines and cluster headaches, I would also say that's really up there in, in, in the potential for cause X. Um, especially given kind of a, um, some research I've conducted recently on, on kind of quantifying, you know, how, how, what are like the most important sources of extreme suffering? And it really turns out that, you know, migraines may actually account for a big percentage of it. Uh, and likewise, uh, cluster headaches and, and it's incredible. And it, it almost sounds absurd that, you know, magic mushrooms can actually treat migraines and cluster headaches, but, but it's true. And, um, that said, in, in that case, it's not actually the psychedelic trip that treats them. It's something much more biochemical and, and low level. So uh, it turns out you can actually get away with, in a sense, you know, taking a sub-hallucinogenic dose. And that, for, for a good percentage of people, still treats their cluster headaches or, um, or, or, or migraines. Um, uh, at QRI, we, we even kind of uh, investigated a, a little bit the, the possibility of starting a company where... Uh, we would be, in a sense, uh, providing DMT vape pens uh, for alleviating migraines and cluster headaches. And the reasoning was that, I mean, DMT, um, if you vaporize it, uh, it starts working uh, within three seconds to basically eliminate the, the pain of a migraine or, or cluster headaches. And within 10 seconds, uh, the, the migraine uh, or the cluster headache is pretty much gone. Wow. That's, I mean... <laughs> Hard to imagine with like any other intervention, pharmacological especially. Yes, yes, and uh, yeah. I mean, in the case of something like cluster headaches, the uh, the the best treatments uh, nowadays, um, not using psychedelics, uh, may take the pain from you know like ten out of ten to uh, you know perhaps like six out of ten. Um, but the problem is that you know it, it takes like forty minutes for for the treatment to actually start to work. And, you know, 40 minutes of a cluster headache is already a, a moral disaster, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and then the other thing is that, yeah, actually, the if you take Imatrex, is one of the, the leading uh, pharmaceuticals for cluster headaches. If you take it um, uh, multiple times a day, you, you, you're you likely to actually develop complications, have a heart attack. Um, wow. And, you know, it doesn't even fully work. 
So it's, it's just like kind of like the case for something like psychedelics for migraines and cluster headaches, I think is like so, so, so strong that it, it, it really should be uh, uh, really up there in effective altruism. Yeah, and, and psychedelics are an interesting case where they're extremely cheap to manufacture at scale. Yeah. Um, you know, people have, can make like millions of batches, millions of hits of LSD in like a single lab because right. it's active in the micrograms. Yep. Um, psilocybin can be grown in <laughs> nature or in like a, a dark room. Yep. Um, DMT, I'm not as familiar with the the uh, manufacture of it, but I'd imagine it's subject to similar economics. And yeah. So they're very, very cheap in the black market, especially if you know where to look, but then making them legal, <laughs> they're the ways in which capitalism is going to mediate the uh, legalization of these products could actually mm-hmm. end up causing them to be costing like thousands of dollars per single session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, from a you know pragmatic point of view, uh, I, I think it's fine if they end up like costing quite a bit. Uh, insurance would, in most cases, take care of it. Um, I mean, it, it would still be worth it, even if it was an expensive treatment. But also, just to actually, you know, make it work, like make it work from the FDA standpoint, uh, you need you need some kind of like patent or, or guarantee that that the, the 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 people who invested money on making it legal, you know, can actually recover that money. I think I think that's going to be important. It, you know, it definitely sucks that something that you know should be a birthright uh, <laughs> for for all humans is going to be very expensive. But yeah, I think that's that's life. And uh, you can always, you know, just grow it your own. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's the legal prohibition is lifted? Yeah. Presumably, it might be like marijuana, where even if it's not legal to grow it yourself or something, regulation is just like kind of gone away. Exactly. In, in many states. It's not going to be a, a priority for enforcement. Uh, but yeah, no, it's insane. I mean, even, even nowadays, uh, without taking into account the economies of scale, uh, we were calculating that... Um, Basically, aborting a cluster headache, uh, if you use DMT, uh, the cost of that is about like $2. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And if you take these pain threshold or pain uh, report seriously, that's a very, very high impact intervention. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you would, you should be willing to pay like $2,000 for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and so you've also mentioned Ibogaine. And yeah. so this is a really exciting drug. It's a African psychedelic that... Um, leads to a 36-hour trip when taking at a threshold dose. <laughs> and uh, it's really, really good at treating opiate addiction. Um, and it kind of resets the body to a pre-addictive state. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some health risks involved for people with pre-existing heart conditions or people who then take opiates after taking I- Ibogaine dose. It can potentiate those opiates and like lead to overdoses yep. um, in people who are previously tolerant. Um, so there are definitely some risks involved. But you know, as far as treating opiate addiction, like we don't really have... A more effective way of breaking withdrawal specifically yeah 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 exactly um i i guess i i am kind of opinionated uh on opinionated on and basically how um, how to use ibogaine so that's definitely one of the cases where like i think like a lot of true believers um are in a sense peddling a narrative that is harmful so there's this idea of like you have to take a high dose uh part of it is kind of this idea of well, not only will it reset your opioid tolerance, but also you will go through this very difficult trip. It's like vision quests, right? Yeah, like a vision quest. Um, but it's usually very unpleasant. I mean, people say like their ibogaine trip was like not a good experience. Typically, you know, it's like expanded consciousness, 
together with a lot of unpleasant feelings for like 36 hours. Um, but then, the, you know, it's a little bit like Stockholm Syndrome, I think, like a lot of opiate addicts who went through the experience will say like, you know, you just have to do it. You, ta- you know, you have to confront your demons. But uh, you have to hit rock bottom to. You to ha- yeah, exactly. I, I think like all of that is cruel um, and unnecessary, um, especially because um, something else that you can do is microdose ibogaine and just microdose every day for a month, and that will have the same uh, anti tolerance, like tolerance reverting effects, as taking a flood dose without you know experiencing the cardiac danger and without experiencing the bad trip and and without like experiencing like the incapacitation for for an entire you know two days or three days like uh, i think it's like much more sane of an approach to basically aim for kind of the microdose angle uh and also there's kind of like this puritan aspect uh to people who are interested in abogaine a lot of them kind of like advocate this idea of uh you know you you become clean and then you stay clean for the rest of your life and then you kind of like you know smoke weed and and uh, and 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 sing kumbaya in the beach you know kind of like this very hippie vision of post addiction life um i am more interested in figuring out how can we make uh opioids uh sustainable for people who experience chronic pain for people who experience like untreatable uh depression or anxiety um because really i mean opiates are kind of like some of the best uh treatments when it comes to both mental health and physical pain um it's just the problem that they stop working after a while and they become basically a problem all of their own um but with kind of like this approach of taking you know maybe every two days you take a microdose of ibogaine there's a lot of reports of people who due to chronic pain they were taking high dose of opiates every day um, but with this regimen, they're able to cut their dose by 90% and then be able to stick to that lower dose, have even better effects that they were getting before and very few side effects and even kind of like have a, a mood enhancing effect. So not only they're not in pain anymore, but they feel good about life. That's, that's the sort of vision that I would, I would have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so some historical context before drugs were really criminalized in the United States the way they are now. Um, opiates and heroin were just prescribed by doctors. And yeah. there are millions of people in the United States who just had like a functional, you know, opiate addiction. And <laughs> they were able to get like clean supply um, at like very good prices and kind of go about their lives. And it was um, not until this guy, uh, uh, Anslinger, the father of the war on drugs, mm-hmm. um, went after doctors using uh, the Harrison Act and actually, uh, I think, arrested like 20,000 doctors for prescribing mm-hmm. um, heroin to, to patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and this pushed, pushed it all to the black market. And like one of the biggest harms around it is like uh, not knowing your supply, not having access to steady supplies. So you become addicted and then you can't maintain an income. You cannot get access to your thing. And then you turn, turn towards like crime or whatever yep. uh, to get access to it. And then, uh, yeah, tolerance builds over time. So you need more and more, and then you get closer to a uh, lethal dose and just like getting the same effect. That's right. I mean, definitely, even just like the uncertainty of what dose you're taking will typically lead to drug escalation. Whereas like, you know, if you're getting something from a pharmacy and you know, this is five milligrams, I take it every day and it's fine. 
you know, that's much better than like, you know, I don't know what I got, but I still want to treat my pain. So I will kind of like aim a little higher just to make sure. Yeah, that, that, that tends to lead to very bad outcomes in, in the long term. Um, there is this very interesting aspect that, um, you know, if you give free access to cocaine to a rat, um, they die within a week. If you give free access uh, to heroin or morphine to a rat, um, they just become dependent and then they live the same lifespan as normal. So opiates have a kind of like a very different profile when it comes to, you know, how, how much they damage the body relative to uh, stimulants. I mean, stimulants in, in high doses and chronic, they're really, really, really bad. But opiates, if people keep uh, the same dose, they they don't particularly experience negative, you know, chronic health health problems from that. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, if you could, yeah, combine something like a microdose ibogaine with low-dose uh, opiates in the long term, um, yeah, I think like that would be a, probably a very sustainable treatment for, for chronic pain. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would also kind of like mention that um, the kind of like the the most promising approach uh, that I've seen so far, uh, well, that I have thought of so far, basically is combining uh, an anti-tolerance drug such as uh, low dose ibogaine, together with not a classic opioid, uh, which would be kind of a, a morphine or you know oxycodone, like all of these things that. Um, Pharmacologically, they're called full agonists, meaning that they they fully activate the opioid receptor, especially the the mu opiate. Uh, and the problem with that is that it can lead to uh, re- respiratory depression. Right, like if you take too much of it, not only you 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 feel cozy, you also die. <laughs> Whereas there's this other class of opiates that are called uh, partial mu opioid agonists, and it's almost impossible to overdose on them. They, they kind of have like an inbuilt ceiling on how much they're going to affect you. Hmm. Uh, the analogy here is with uh, uh, weed, you know, THC. It's very, very hard to die of an overdose of THC. And that's because THC is a partial cannabinoid uh, agonist. Um, a full cannabinoid agonist is actually really dangerous. I mean, all of the reports uh, of overdoses from like spice uh, back in the 2010s. Like, like fake weed. Like fake weed, exactly. Yeah. There were like, you know, molecular tweaks to uh, THC, some of which ended up being full agonists. And yeah, if you take a full agonist, even though it's the cannabinoid receptor and you may, you know, be under the illusion that the cannabinoid receptor is fully safe, like the truth is that, yeah, you can die of that. Um, But so I'm very bullish about like investigating partial agonists. And in the case of uh, partial opioid agonists, uh, the two kind of like most interesting compounds are tianeptine is one, uh, and then the other one is um, 7-hydroxy, um, uh, I forget, but it is like the, the active compound in Kratom. Okay. Uh, so those two are super promising because it's very, very die, hard to die off of either of them. Um, so I'm thinking that potentially combining a low-dose ibogaine together with a partial mu opioid agonist would potentially be a very healthy long-term solution to like chronic pain and and, and depression. And and something else you mentioned that I want to come back to is uh, this kind of debate within the ibogaine advocacy community. Yeah. And and some historical context here is that ibogaine's anti-addictive properties were discovered by a heroin addict named Howard Lotzoff in 1962. 
And then he gave Ibogaine to a bunch of his friends and like the majority of them broke their addictions. And he's like, We've, we're onto something big here. And kind of like through his activism, uh, got scientists involved, got led a lot of research on it, got a lot of patents. Um, so there's this really strong kind of grassroots community of people who attribute Ibogaine to like saving their life from their addiction. And there's also this community of scientists who are trying to isolate the things about Ibogaine that they think are responsible for it breaking uh, heroin addiction and other addictions so successfully. And so there are people who are trying to isolate the pharmacological intervention without getting the psychoactive one. Um, but then there are people who think that the Vision Quest component is actually a really important part of the experience. And I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that it could be like a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who take psilocybin can break smoking addictions uh, yeah. at very high rates. And to my knowledge, there's no really like chemical component there. It's like just a psychological one where they decide they really want to quit. Um, but given that the experience of Ibogaine could be so unpleasant, maybe a like, you know, have it both ways intervention could be microdosing Ibogaine to get the anti-addictive uh, withdrawal breaking effects combined with a higher dose of like LSD, psilocybin or 5-MeO-DMT. Yes, that's, that. I think that's the way to go. <laughs> Interesting, cool. This is very helpful actually for, for my research. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and, it, and it's true. I mean, it is true that in terms of like smoking cessation, uh, cessation or uh, breaking like alcoholism and and um, breaking addiction more generally, it is mediated by whether you you had a, a mystical experience on a psychedelic, uh, an ego death experience, or meeting with the divine. Like all of those terms, kind of like referring to to you know a, a critical peak experience that allows you to reassess your priorities in life. That seems to be a really important predictor for, for the success of the experience. Uh, but yeah, to get there with Ibogaine alone, you know, you, you end up experiencing so many side effects that I think is just not worth it. Yeah, and, and what, what do you think it is about the mystical experience, the dissolution of self, that leads to these reports of like the highest quality uh, experience that people have ever had? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in current neuroscience, they, they would talk about disabling the um, default mode network. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this very interesting paper by uh, Carhart Harris and Carl Friston, two, two leading neuroscientists, uh, looking at uh, how the brain works and, and how psychedelics work, um, that uh, kind of like hints at uh, the idea that you're relaxing the the priors of your life. Basically, you're relaxing kind of your 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 habits uh, and your your default ways of thinking and acting for for the duration of the experience uh, and kind of like a, a, a mystical state uh, dissolution of the ego or kind of like a you know the clear white light of the bardo as Timothy Leary might describe it yeah that, that's kind of like a fully unconstrained state I mean like that's a state where you don't even remember who you are and having your brain be in that state for a couple minutes at the very least, potentially longer. Yeah, I may mean, have kind of this very, very significant impact of, you know, you're reorganizing your brain, you're reorganizing the priorities of your brain um, without constraining it to anything, without constraining it to kind of like any habit that you that you have in your life. It's kind of like, well, biologically, what do you actually need? And and in a sense, yeah, the, those reprioritizations will, will stick for, for afterwards. Um, Whereas if you're kind of like clinging to your ego all throughout and you never actually experience the, you know, an ego dissolution, you will end up, you know, 
in a sense, almost kind of reinforcing whatever you were clinging into. Like it's kind of like, well, I was able to, you know, withhold the psychedelic storm um, with these little thread, you know, or with these little raft, and and then that raft will continue to be there afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the reasons why people come back with like these really kind of wacky beliefs after a really powerful <laughs> psychedelic experience, at least a hypothesized reason is that there's no se- sense of self to evaluate the veracity of, mm-hmm. of the you know revealed truth that you get when you're like peeking on mushrooms or 5-MeO DMT yeah and so somebody who like I have a friend who is uh you know very I'd say like epistemically grounded person for the most part you know mm-hmm. like you know, very successful career very uh well educated and uh she had a ayahuasca experience where she said she saw a demon like leave her body and it's not a metaphorical demon it's like literally mm. a demon mm-hmm. and it's just like i don't want to invalidate that experience but i don't suddenly believe in demons now because somebody i know and otherwise trust like has a very strong opinion about it i guess like do you do you agree with that kind of like hypothesis as a, a fruitful thing to explore like the the lack of self leads to mm. maybe some like beliefs that aren't as well calibrated to reality um yeah that's interesting uh i'm not sure i'm not sure if 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 i've seen data on that on like um if like the development of delusions being correlated with uh the ego dissolution state uh or like peak experience but that, that seems likely and yeah kind of like the absence of a robust self for evaluating the truth of uh of what happens yeah i think yeah, yeah, that, that it would make would make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, broadly speaking, when you, when we're talking about things such as like seeing a demon come out of your body, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, emotional intensity, and that yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we tend to believe in emotionally intense experiences. They 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 tend to shape not only how we feel but also what we believe, um, which kind of like I I do think it underscores the importance of going into a trip with a lot of philosophical clarity. And also doing it, you know, in a context where there's other people who are like pretty rational. Yeah. Yeah. To put it in Bayesian terms, your prior beliefs uh, might just go away if there's no self to believe them. Yeah. 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 And so you could over update on new information. A prior less state. So yeah. basically, yeah, what, what you experience is kind of a <laughs> direct from source and directly, directly inherently true, or that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And this uh, gives like maybe some. Uh, circumstantial evidence for Terence McKenna's thesis that um, mm-hmm. psychedelics led to the creation of religions because mm. this like power of the belief in revealed truth that you get from these experiences can be very persuasive to other people who might not have the same priors that a scientist today would. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, no, and, and I think that, yeah, that's definitely a side effect to, to, to manage, kind of like a reduced epistemic rigor. Um, I, I, I think that's like manageable. I think it's just we we need to basically develop a better culture around it. Uh, right now, like there's really not many safeguards in, in, in that respect. It's almost kind of like psych- the psychedelic community actually encourages you to, to develop more wacky beliefs, um, which is, yeah, why I would be kind of counter counter cultural <laughs> in a sense <laughs> and say like, no, 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 actually, you know, read neuroscience papers and, and, and try to investigate, you know, the the structural features of your experience don't get caught up in the what the experience is about don't like don't get caught up in the narrative focus instead in how it feels 
Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And I mean, this is one of the consequences, right, of something that's pushed to the fringes of society mm-hmm. uh, through mm-hmm. legal prohibition. Um, yeah, yeah, paradoxically, <laughs> paradoxically, yeah, some of the men- negative mental health effects, yeah, may actually be because of, of the prohibition, the paranoia, and then kind of like an insular culture that develops out of kind of like not being able to talk about things freely. Yeah, there was actually a paper that looked at um, the incidence of bad trips uh, corresponding with media reports of ah. bad psychedelic experiences mm-hmm. and found it like there were really not many reports of bad uh, psychedelic experiences when they were new and kind of like un- untested and there was not a uh, media conception of, of what psychedelics were. And then there were all these scare stories published mm-hmm. in like Time Life of like, you know, girl five, it's LSD <laughs> goes wild. And like people like this guy murdered his family because of like a bad trip or something. Yeah. Like they're, they're almost entirely bullshit. Um, but people read those and then they read a story that's made up like people will go blind by staring into the sun <laughs> on, well, on yeah. uh, acid. And then they do this thing and like, you know, expectation becomes reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And then there's also beliefs that like psychedelics the early proponents of them kind of, I don't want to say poison the well, but set the tone for the entire experience where yes. they were uh, really convinced in the power of psychedelics to change the politics of the world. And then therefore people afterwards took them with that expectation and yeah. like they became that way. Yeah, no, that's that's quite fascinating. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I do think it's sad in a sense that psychedelics became politicized for, for that reason. Um, Kind of like this expectation that is going to push you towards a particular, you know, side of the political spectrum. Um, whereas I, I think like they're yeah much more of a neutral type of. I mean like in, in in their fundamental effect, they do increase your openness to experience, but that doesn't necessarily you will not not necessarily imply you will you know all of a sudden start agreeing with all of left wing policies. It's, I don't think it's a straightforward implication. Yeah, th- there is some pretty robust um, conclusions of like anti-authoritarianism, mm-hmm. nature relatedness. Like I'd say just very positive um, changes to people's like perceptions and mm-hmm. I don't know I'd imagine obviously some people are pro-authoritarian or against nature but um, I think that those are generally seen as like good things and yeah increasing that would be a desirable effect yeah that's right I mean at the same time we have to consider like what you know what would history have been like if the the, the people um, originally kind of like setting the tone for psychedelics had been you know um conservative christians and they 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 might have thought of like okay this is the the one drug that we take that will actually see you uh give you a direct vision of like why our religion is true and yeah that that could have also been a stable state yeah that's super interesting um so i know we're coming up on time uh where would people go to learn more about the work you're doing yeah uh qualia research institute.org uh is kind of like the the main website uh then i i write a lot at qualiacomputing.com uh, I also recommend um, Mike's blog, Mike Johnson's, which is one of uh, our co-founders uh, opentheory.net um, there you will see kind of probably actually the most <laughs> sober analysis, a lot of uh, stuff in qualia computing is uh, uh, it's kind of like high, high risk uh, high reward, like unlikely but interesting to ponder about things get much more digested in opentheory.net yeah, yeah um, and I'll put links to all of these in the in the show notes. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think w- the work you're doing is super fascinating. Really excited to see where it goes next. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. This has been a yeah wonderful conversation and uh, really good questions. Well, thank you, Andres. <laughs> Great, thank you. 
This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.